Hello, and welcome to Public Intellectual. Public Intellectual is a podcast that is supported solely by its listeners. So if you would like to contribute, please go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. I have a feeling this will be an unpopular episode of the podcast. I was trying to figure out what we could name this that would make people listen to it without just lying about the content. It feels like everyone is done talking about, thinking about, and caring about abortion rights. It gets lost in the enormous swarm of problems like our chaotic healthcare system and the larger general threat to women's rights, and everyone has stopped paying attention. Occasionally, we'll get a headline when another stupid restrictive law is passed or another clinic closes, but for the most part, we don't care. And this is a fault with the people on the left. We on the left have not done our jobs because maternal death rates are climbing. Women cannot get the care and the support they need. And it's easy to just blame this on the right. But we have left women vulnerable. And we have not done enough to control the conversation and to step in politically, emotionally, intellectual, to do the hard work of creating an environment where women are free to make choices about whether or not to be mothers. To be mothers in a general sense, or just the mothers of this particular pregnancy. This is a very personal issue for me. Working at Planned Parenthood was the beginning of my political radicalization, we'll call it. But I've too had two abortions in my life one at the age of 21, and one at the age of 30. And they were life-altering experiences. And we'll talk a little bit about this in the podcast. But I wanted to talk to Alyssa Court, who is a journalist and poet and filmmaker, because of an article she wrote with Barbara Ehrenreich for The Guardian. It was about the rising maternal death rates and the place limited abortion access has in those figures. She's part of this economic hardship reporting project with Ehrenreich, and they're doing such amazing work. So I invited her to talk on on how we are in this position where abortion is technically legal, but getting one is so difficult. It was recently the 45th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, and we are in a position now where abortion is technically legal, um, but for a large part of the nation, um, inaccessible. So do you feel like at the moment, on the political left, there is enough sort of awareness of issues of access and a plan for how we kind of... um, can move forward and start rebuilding the rights that have been um, dismantled by the conservatives? Well, you know, I've been really struck. I started reporting on this issue for the film The Last Clinic in like 2012 or 13, how this issue, um, right to choose, has been delayed and kind of culturally and politically in ways that other issues haven't. Like we've seen an acceleration of rights for all sorts of different groups. But, 
in some ways there was more um, access, you know, 20, 30 years ago mm-hmm. um, uh, to uh, other forms of uh, either, either even birth control. So I, it's disheartening. And yeah, I do think part of it is that we've been focusing our awareness in so many different areas now <laughs> that we're in some ways like losing, losing a sense of what's going on. And you know, one of the things that's been going on is what, what I call the red state derby, which is um, a battle between red states about who is going to be the first state to get rid of all their clinics. So it's no longer as much of a national, um, national political issue as it should be, and instead it's being waged locally. And so how did we kind of get to this place of, um, you know, a lot of this has been um, access has been degraded via sort of, um, you know, uh, regulations uh, pushed through on a local level as far as uh, waiting uh, periods and counseling and then things like the dimensions of the hallways of the abortion clinics and um, ambulance access and and so on and so forth. Um, So how did that, um, how has that been waged and why hasn't it been sort of, has it been pushed back uh, against, but not in a obviously effective way? Well, we, we are pushing back against it. Um, you know, when I reported in Mississippi and the, the clinic there, um, they were trying to create all kinds of games to keep the doctors from flying in. Um, the doctors, for their own safety, would often fly in or come in from other states to work in that clinic. There was, it was the last one remaining. And they would say, oh, you need to be registered in a local hospital. And then for political reasons, the local or political or maybe even partially bureaucratic reasons, the local hospitals would not let them register. And then they were then it was trying there was an attempt to then block their doctor's ability to perform abortions. So that was one of the most brutal um examples that I saw and, and definitely things like measuring like how far is the bathroom from the I mean mm-hmm. I, I, not that exactly but how far is the operating room or how far is the bathroom from the um, uh, surgery or whatever um, and it was almost it has this Kafka-esque feeling mm-hmm. and I wonder I mean part of why people may not be so aware is that we are in some ways living in a divided America in terms of north and south um, heartland and coasts um, I think, you know, the feminist movement and uh, people who concentrate on choice are aware of this. And But I, I wonder about a lot of, you know, media is not necessarily happening anymore in some of these states. Mm-hmm. In you know, their local newspapers have decreased, you know, sometimes by 50 percent. So are, who's reporting on it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in Kansas and I remember uh, sort of Operation Rescue's um, constant presence in Wichita. Um, and then, of course, when George Tiller was assassinated, um, which was, I want to say, 13, 14 years ago, something like that. Um, yeah, it sort of changed um, the tenor of everything um, in the sense of, and kind of like, you know, I, I in, in some ways blame um the uh, internet feminists um, for some of this because so little attention is put on these real issues because for the most part, feminist media is um, um, located on the coast. And so it's not necessarily their problem. They don't have to see it. Um, And so they give attention to things like, you know, um, national, 
you know, Hillary Clinton and uh, the Me Too movement and so on and so forth. But the, these access uh, issues for poor women and rural women and women in the in red states um, really gets overlooked and neglected by the feminist movement, I think. I mean, that's another reason. I mean, just to weave back to what I do for a living now, I, I run this organization called Economic Hardship Reporting Project, and I co-founded its current uh, incarnation with the great author Barbara Ehrenreich, who was also an early um, choice advocate, wrote a lot on some of the early movement. Um, and part of why we exist right now is to try to support journalism in non-coastal areas. Um, something there was some piece that twenty seven percent of journalism occurs outside of um, New York to Virginia and the West Coast. Mm-hmm. I mean that's uh, a teeny amount given how many people and how large a country this is. So. Um, Part of what we want to do with EHRP is get people writing in these areas about their own communities and writing about inequality, which we think can also uh, applies to reproductive rights. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of it is bringing those two areas together. It's not just about, you know, our, our ability to go to Planned Parenthood in, you know, uh, Washington, D.C. and whatnot. It's really about, um, you know, access in North Dakota, access in Mississippi mm-hmm. and people who can write about that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it seems like any time if the, if the New York Times is going to do a piece um, about the middle of the country, it's just to talk to Trump voters about how they're thinking about things. And that's that's a, that's all they do. Um, but, yeah, it's um, the inequality issue is so, um, you know, if you're if you're a, a, a poor woman and your health insurance is inadequate and most health insurance, a lot of health insurance doesn't cover abortion services anyway. um it costs hundreds of dollars and you need to have it done fast because the longer you wait into the pregnancy, of course, the more expensive um, the uh, procedure becomes. And so you need to get money together really fast in order to um, um, have an abortion. And then that doesn't even include uh, driving to a place that has um, services and then waiting times and so on and so forth. Like it really racks up really fast. Um, yeah. So for instance, in Mississippi, you know, when we reported down there, me and um, uh, the filmmaker Maisie Crow, who mm-hmm. made uh, The Last Clinic and also a documentary now on Showtime called Jackson. Um, yeah, there'd be people, women who were staying in, you know, motels because they had um, come down from other p- parts in the state to Jackson or, you know, come from other states. Um, and, you know, these were women who had to leave a job, had to leave kids, had to find daycare. Mm-hmm. Um, they had very religious, religious families. Um, if they were going to take the so-called, you know, abortion pill, um, they would have to do it. Sometimes they told me privately, they'd have to lock themselves in the bathroom. So no one in their families would know because they, they weren't, uh, high income, even though they were in their 20s or 30s, they lived with their families. And it was a source of stigma and shame. And so it's like there's the levels of just the practical reality of having and the expenses of having to having a waiting period, having to travel far. Um, but then there's also the psychological uh, intensity and stigma when you have to go through all this rigmarole and you're also lying mm-hmm. or hiding from you know, the people who love you because they're you know, very uh, religious and have very extreme views. So I, I think that that was part of the thing that really struck me that um, these women were like really suffering just to um, assert their rights. And usually they had kids. And this is one thing that 
um, I've actually really wanted to get out there a lot. It's that um, uh, while three in 10 women will have abortions in their lives, eight out of 10 will give birth. And about 61% of women who have had an abortion already have at least one child. So, I, I mean, this is not a zero-sum game. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, this was a third child or a fourth child or sometimes like a fifth child that these women couldn't afford. And, you know, they didn't. you don't even have to say that they can't afford it. It was, just wasn't the right time. Mm-hmm. How many states now have um, only one clinic or are on that level? Um, I'd have to look at the numbers. Uh, you know, when I was doing this reporting, it was a handful, um, but they were the usual culprits. It was, you know, uh, as I said, North Dakota, Mississippi, um, uh, Arkansas, uh, you know, uh, South Dakota, Wyoming. Um, and it was a th- at that time, this was a few years ago, it was a group called 40 Days for Life that were working to bring about the first abortion-free state where abortion is legal, but it's simply not available. So that was the that was the phrase that this group was using. It was a really um, aggressive effort. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's um, this is probably I don't know. Um, You know, when I was when I was in living in Texas and uh, I was working at Planned Parenthood and and volunteering um, as an abortion counselor, um, it was we were watching clinics close um, one after another um, until it just became, you know, um, Austin, uh, Houston, Waco and Dallas, Fort Worth. And that was it. Um, And Texas is an enormous state, obviously. And so we'd have people coming in, you know, driving for five to six hours, sometimes longer, sometimes coming in from Oklahoma. Um, Yeah, it was really um, it was really um, emotionally uh, exhausting uh, working in that environment and hearing people's stories. And um, it's to me, people who work in abortion clinics in, in this particular era of our existence are just angels, you know, yeah. like they're really hardcore, dedicated, especially in Texas, like the most hardcore ladies you will ever meet in your And, life. you know, often they face stigma in their community, right? Mm-hmm. And they have to, like, show up at their kids' school baseball games and be, you know, have a run in with a, you know, pro-lifer. Sure. Um, and that actually happened. Um, it wound up being a conversation that was interesting um, that uh, appears in the film Jackson, but it was like a really interesting thing. Um, but, you know, and often these people have lots and lots who work in the clinics have lots of kids. So again, it's like the complicatedness of that experience. Some of them themselves have never had, um, uh, have never had an abortion. Some of them have had abortion, adoption, birth, all the experiences. But then they have to show up in this community that's um, religious and uh, judgmental about their about their bravery. Um, but yeah, and so I mean, I guess part of why we're here right now is that it's gotten worse. Right? There's um, a kind of mort- maternal m- mortality now related to the lack of access. Mm-hmm. M- moms are dying uh, when in states where they uh, at record numbers in states where they can um, access. Uh, abortions. Yeah, I mean that's one um aspect of this conversation it that doesn't um it doesn't get connected enough I don't think is that um America's maternal death rate is rising and we're the only developed country in the world in which that's um that's actually happening. Um so you know part of that 
obviously, like our healthcare system, top to bottom, is just an absolute shit show and uh, an an embarrassment to the world. Um, but at the same time, why? How is this not a um, more of a visible political issue for on the left? Um, it, it doesn't. It does not make sense to me. Well, I think you know. Let's say you know this is about poor women. Um, it's about poor women, as we were saying, in, in areas that are not um, where journalists don't live. <laughs> be, uh, you know, or very few journalists tend to live. You know, in like Texas, as you said, uh, that it saw its maternal mortality rate more than double between 2010 and 2014 when the state was closing more than half of its clinics and severely cutting funding for Planned Parenthood. And that's part of why Barbara Ehrenreich and I, when we wrote this piece recently in The Guardian, we said it's we should I mean, this was kind of a Jonathan Swift kind of tendentious uh, framing, but pro-life in this case is pro-death. You know, Mm -hmm. we want to sort of the argument is to save the lives of the unborn. But meanwhile, you're risking the lives of the very much alive. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So how do we sort of. It seems like the conversation, even on the side of the left, is very limited as far as how we're allowed to talk about um, abortion rights. And even sort of, you know, prominent women politicians like Hillary Clinton and so on and so forth, they'll give lip service in the sense of like, you know, we need to protect Roe. And that's great. You know, I hope Roe v. Wade isn't overturned. But there's a whole lot of other shit that needs to happen in order to make sure that abortions are actually um, available and so on and so forth. Um, but I think part of it is we get stuck in this rhetoric of, you know, pro-life, uh, pro-choice. And there are certain <clears throat> sorry, there are certain stories that we're allowed to tell about abortion and but it's not allowed to be complicated and it's not allowed to be um, emotional or, um, or yeah, difficult or et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so how do we start to change? You know, I remember there was the ask me about my abortion t-shirts that Jennifer Baumgartner did. Um, and so there was the beginning of a sort of conversation of people telling people's uh, personal stories Um in order to remove stigma and so on and so forth. It didn't seem like um, it's gone anywhere from that. I mean, maybe in some part it's like the era of Trump, it's so bad that people are distracted. Um, yeah. You know, and if we had a Democrat, a Hillary Clinton, you know, people would be starting to refocus on this. I mean, that's one thing. But, I, you know, I do think, um, you know, the traditional, like, kind of rights argument for uh, uh pro-choice needs to be complicated. And I don't think it just needs to be complicated where we get to talk about sadness if we do have a abortion or a miscarriage mm-hmm. or, you know, um, uh, or sadness if we have a kid or, you know, you know, all the sort of co- complexity uh, that is around every reproductive experience. I mean, these are deep physical and um, emotional experiences, you know, for everybody. But I think we can also start talking about um, – go beyond rights discourse and start talking about something I was trying to get out there called the birth continuum or the birth spectrum, which would be making um, abortion part of um, a kind of color wheel of uh, reproductive experiences, which would include adoption, birth, not having kids, mm-hmm. miscarriage. Um, and so in some ways, in would uh, some centers have been doing this, and I 
helped with the make a write and conceive of a documentary called Reconception that was about this, um, uh, where there was some kind of counseling services and also clinics where you can um, get an uh, abortion, you can get counseling about your future child, you can get diapers, you can get sometimes even adoption assistance or counseling around that, um, all in the same center. And so it sort of starts to camouflage for people who are having an abortion, it, it, it camouflages that. So mm-hmm. for instance, there's one in Buffalo where they were, they were also a birth center. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the protesters wouldn't always know who was who. Um, and I, I think that's something that really gets at what would be ideal where it's not the severed experience. Yeah. Um, and then in this counseling center that I went to in Indiana, where there was uh, counseling for a range of outcomes, that was also something that was, you know, very you know, giving people the kind of emotional and, uh, you know, literal support that they needed for all experiences. So there would be like diaper wheels and uh, as well as here's where you go for your abortion or Mm -hmm. here's where you go for your birth control pills. Um, And that was interesting because I also went to some CPCs, crisis pregnancy centers that were, and those are the centers that um, are pro-life and they, um, uh, but they also give diapers and they give counseling and they give food sometimes, even lodging. And so they're giving all these supports that um, uh, uh, our, you know, our side isn't always giving. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the things about a birth continuum would be saying, well, women need support when they're making choices uh, like having a kid or when they may, you know, have a abortion, they need a doula. Mm-hmm. You know? So there's this, now this thing called abortion doulas and um, they give them uh, that assistance voluntarily at sometimes at clinics. And I think, you know, we need to make this uh, a whole constellation of services and um, narratives and, uh, but also, you know, um, diapers and formula, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it's, if you want, obviously in the, the support tends to stop uh, from the right uh, once birth actually happens. Um, but yeah, if you if you want to um, continue your pregnancy or, you know, if you feel forced into uh, continuing your pregnancy, there are, um, there's this whole system uh, about trying to keep women pregnant, but there's, it's such an isolated experience if you're having an abortion in the United States of like, there's this grim little building that you go to and that's all that happens there um and it's uh completely depressing and then you're sort of like you know pushed out onto the street afterward to deal with the fallout of that um and it's an intensely complicated um experience and decision and so on and there's not um there's not that support system no i agree and i feel like that's something that we could really start advocating for and be a really good use of <laughs> um, of funds, seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the best uh, practitioners I saw were the people who acknowledged the psychological complexity. And, uh, you know, like uh, Willie Parker, who was at the doctor at the center, um, uh, the clinic where like, we reported in Mississippi, who would be like talking the patients through it and mm-hmm. asking them about their Thanksgiving meals and their grandma. And it was just really humanizing. So, I mean, yeah, it wasn't necessarily like aftercare that we, we'd love to see, but mm-hmm. it was at least acknowledging that they had specificity and it was, a, you know, a unique and difficult experience for people. Um I mean, one of the points around inequality, too, is that in a lot of these states without access, people who are wealthy can fly and they can 
take off work and they can easily find daycare. And so I think that's that's one of the things that uh, makes the big difference, too, is that, you know, uh, it's support not just for the act of uh, having an abortion, but there's also all this other kinds of support that people need in order to uh, go about their lives. Um, And when they're low income, this is so much harder. Yeah. And also one of the sort of isolating experiences is that, I mean, at least when I was sort of um, more directly active in in the movement, um, it wasn't a requirement in medical school for OBGYNs to learn how to uh, perform abortion services. So it was like uh, you could volunteer to learn that information, but it wasn't part of... Um, bizarrely, um, a woman's health curricula for uh, somebody who was going to be uh, dealing with women's reproductive issues. It's so weird to me that it's just like it's completely separate. Right. You know, according to one study, only 14 percent of doctors who specialize in obstetrics and gynecology perform abortions. You know, so advocates for combining services want to put birth activists like those advocating for um, vaginal births together with those arguing for abortion rights. And that can sometimes be a harder connection than you see at first because some of the kind of home birth people, you know, um, they have, you know, they they can get come to it from this very, uh, I mean, some of them are pro-life, you know, um, and they have this kind of slightly essentialist aspect around it. So it's like, but let's try to make those bridges. Um, so, Ireland um, is finally getting a referendum uh, about legalizing abortion. And it's interesting to me that this is happening after gay marriage was legalized in the sense of like, this seems more radical and harder to. Exactly. It, and it, it's, it's startling. I mean, Katha, uh, Katha Pollitt made this point um, and I loved it, which is just like. We have gay marriage. We had, I mean, a lot of this stuff is now being stripped back by Trump, but there just seemed like this moment where there was just, you know, uh, kind of trans rights and just uh, like this explosion of all these uh, rights movements that in the in the past had been uh, hadn't even been so clearly on the radar. And then you have this thing that affects, uh, you know, I mean, at some point uh, may affect 50 percent of the population. And it's and it's. Um, totally stymied. And I think it's, you know, it's really about around religion, you know, and that's where we get to that. That Why is this not advancing? But I also think it has to do with the fact that um, maybe we don't have a good, good branding. <laughs> I mean, there's that. Uh, we don't have um, necessarily, as you said, some feminists, a lot of feminists aren't focusing on it. Um, and that the people who are suffering most are poor. I think that's a that's a huge part of this. Um and also, I think um, both in Ireland and in America, we are deeply sentimental about mothers. Like, and um, abortion is a is a radical act in the sense of um, you are choosing in that moment not to mother this particular um, pregnancy, this particular life, um, and that seems way more of a kind of um, goes against all of our sentimental notions about what women are for and and who they're supposed to be um, than a kind of, you know, um, gay marriage is, is a kind of conservative agenda of, of um, assimilation rather mm-hmm, than, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so that's my little rant about the, about the subject. That's funny. Yeah. It's, so it's, it's all to, it's towards the domestic. Mm-hmm. And this is actually. But see, again, this is a this is a frame framing issue, because if we say many of the people who choose to have abortions 
already have families. It's not an anti-family move. And in some ways, it's often, I mean, you and I agree on this, but it's to shore up the families that they actually have. You know, it's to let those families thrive. Yeah. And we could, I mean, I think we are losing opportunities by not not, not making some of these arguments in a Mm -hmm. pro-family register. You know, Mm -hmm. it's because, you know, they're, I talked to so many moms who are in clinics, you know, mm-hmm. who were just trying to get the money to pay for their kids that were that uh, existed. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. um, that was what that was what was motivating them. Yeah. Um, so how do we? You know, you said part of it's a branding issue. So um, you know, where does that begin? How do we start to have that conversation? Um, I mean, with the economic economic hardship uh, project that you're that you're doing um yeah tell, beginning to tell the stories and find mainstream um venues um so that people uh remember that things happen in the middle of the country sometimes um uh is is important but how do we start as far as like political rhetoric goes as far as the like, organization goes do not have an. It's fine I, to not to have yeah, an answer. I'm not question. sure. I mean, the 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 thing that always struck me was around the doula issue. Um, mm-hmm. That that seemed like a really positive, um, a positive thing to have. Um, you know, uh, for instance, in New York City, the there's something called the doula project where. Uh, which helps women during and immediately after birth, but also assist with abortions and even adoptions. Um, and they've, you know, helped tens of thousands of people and they partner with clinics, um, you know, and some of the people who do this work um, speak Spanish and, um, you know. Um, so I think, you know, we now hew to religious re- rhetoric on one hand and rights-oriented rhetoric on the other, but I, you know, one of my things with trying to get this birth continuum language out there is to just rejigger the ex- thinking and remind us that many of us experience both childbirth and abortion. Mm-hmm. And that, that I mean, I think that's asked me about my abortion, um, Jennifer's slogan. And also I think she had photos where she was pregnant and there was that that slogan out there. I mean, that seemed to me a very striking mm-hmm. kind of way to, way to do this. Again, like um, harnessing some of the pro-family uh, iconography and and saying this is this is not an opposition mm-hmm. um yeah and, and it does seem like occasionally there's something um there was a new york magazine uh cover story about um a, about she she the woman who wrote it and now her name is escaping me uh for some reason but um uh who had a um pregnancy and the tests were um, it, were wrong, were incomplete, and so she had um, a, a child who was born sick. Um, and oh, yeah, framing it, yeah, yeah, in the sense of like I would have, I would have aborted this, um, this pregnancy. Um, which I like that that was so complicated, um, and so prominent, um, mm-hmm. as well that it was allowed to be, um, really kind of dark and weird and. Yeah, yeah, I enjoyed that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing a theme, just a yeah, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, um, I mean, with the maternal mortality thing, we, we need to get that out. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was one of the things, you know, um, a lot of these women are people of color um, who are who are dying um, mm-hmm. in these states. And uh, we had talked to Black Lives Matter about that. And, um, I mean, I think also the pro-lifers are now using this whole phrase around, you know, black genocide. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, 
when we were filming one of the films I worked on, they kept saying, oh, black genocide. And it was just really outrageous. They were like a bunch of white people. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, we need to think about that, too. Like, why is this, uh, you know, like, as ProPublica reported, um, uh, black moms who are college educated fare worse than women of all other races who have never finished high school um, in terms of maternal mortality. So that mm-hmm. seems something to look at. <laughs> um, and I, that's not a branding thing. That's almost like a medical issue, right? Mm-hmm. So why, why, why is that happening? Yeah, there was a New York Times op- op-ed recently about um, how Democrats should step away from the pro-choice issue and to embrace uh, pro-lifers into their party, that it shouldn't be, uh, you know, what the, I guess the term they always use in order to be uh, totally demeaning about it is litmus test, uh, the litmus test of, of being pro-choice in order to be um, a member of the Democratic Party or, or, and to run uh, um, as a politician, as a Democrat, um, that, that Democrats should abandon abortion rights as a central platform, which is just horrifying to me. Mm-hmm. It really feels like there's um, an abandonment on this issue from Interesting. Uh, the power. Well, it sounds like Jessica could be a new book for you. Seriously, <laughs> a new book. No. <laughs> um, well, you know, one of the uh, the the women at uh, who works at the one of the clinics um, I reported on calls them aunties, um, pro-lifers, and I, I found that kind of an interesting rhetoric because it's like, um, yeah, they're aunties; they're not pro, mm-hmm. and that's we have to start thinking that. I mean, that's just a simple branding move that she was doing because she was trying to survive their threats, and mm-hmm. um, but I found that. Uh, captivating and you know barbara and i suggested you know maybe we need to assemble a body count of the women who have died because they couldn't get an abortion complete with photos of them and their families and their children Mm -hmm. maybe we should be reading their names aloud at every pro-choice gathering i mean maybe there's a kind of um emotional again non-rights oriented but like emotional rhetoric around the family Mm -hmm. and who is lost uh that we could start to use in this movement and there's also been um, the beginning uh, or the continuation, I guess, of criminalizing uh, women who end their pregnancies in a, you know, um, who can't go to an abortion clinic because they can't uh, afford it. So they um, drink poison or mm-hmm. hit themselves or whatever, or cause a miscarriage. Right, like and the woman in Indiana. Yeah. 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 And it seems like there's not, you know, why are we not raising money for her constantly? Like, why are we not... Um, putting her face on signs why are we not supporting her uh emotionally financially uh etc it seems really um strange to me how how little attention um is being paid to these cases so what would you like us to do i would like um well (laughs) i would like there to be an abortion clinic on every street corner i mean you know whatever not really but um i would like a comprehensive um kind of care for women um as far as what we're talking about as far as um like a whole women's center that would have birth and adoption and yeah regular gynecological checkups and it would provide some cover to women who were making this choice too yeah Yeah. i think so and it would also like make an implicit argument about how all these things are you know brought together yeah and when i'm sort of talking you know i've had these conversations with my friends who've had abortions and i've had abortions um of what sort of how the m- most terrible parts of that experience were 
the lack of aftercare and lack of information in ways of like, oh, your hormones are going to plummet uh, into the earth and you're, you can have panic and depression and these sorts of issues. And here's how to take care of that. Um, so that information is still sort of passed hand to hand through women who've experienced it and that sort of thing. But it's not part of the rhetoric. We don't take care of women emotionally who are going through this process. Um, you know, we don't ha have um, counseling services when they when the uh, decision is difficult or complicated. Um, it's really just a medical procedure. And I don't think women experience it as a medical procedure. Mm hmm. Uh, most women, you know. I also think, I mean, part of this is men, right? I mean, this is we have to start thinking about, you know, uh, not just partners, but just men in general to have a different um, capacity around the, these kind of so-called female experiences. Again, on the birth continuum <laughs> from miscarriage to um and I know there's like men who sort of are self-styled feminists who would say, oh, yes, I'm, I'm great on this. But I think it's something that men should could start to think about. Mm -hmm. If you have a female partner, you know, you're, you know, you're likely to experience mm -hmm. um, this. Some, some one of these things just uh, statistically is likely to happen to this person. So um, how are you going to react? You know, that's, mm -hmm. I'm addressing the invisible man here. How are you going to react? <laughs> there's a visible man here. What kind as of well, support so. are you going to do? Give. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, what would you like to see, um, see from men on that issue, I guess, or, you know, whenever we start to talk about what men's roles in these things, it's, it's, it's complicated by the fact that a lot of men are, are bad. Um, <laughs> and a lot of men are violent, um, especially, you know, a, a pregnant woman is much more likely to be, um, murdered by her partner than a not pregnant woman. Um, so, um, well, see, this was the thing I, I mean, I've been doing a lot of talking about me too, cause you know. Um, I've been writing on the relationship between inequality and sexual harassment, right? And like, you know, working class women, uh, we, we were some of the people to do that early on, Barbara and I. Um, and I just think, you know, I said that about during that too, like we're focusing on women, women coming out, me too, communicating, but it's like, let's talk about masculinity. Let's talk about ways in which masculinity needs to be reassessed, like uh, that a strong man is somebody who, or like a uh, powerful man is somebody who gets what he wants and takes up space. Um, so that was in that case, like let's start sort of questioning why we still have these these models for masculinity and aggression and mm -hmm. success, you know, mm -hmm. successful man. You know, but I think some of this is like what kind of support can a man who feels like he, he should be um, having a family and, you know, having a family in a, uh, orderly fashion, like, you know, these are sort of the things that we need to be challenging, like, you know, that his sense of identity or success would be uh, based on that. Mm -hmm. um, and that women are always being asked to, like, sort of have uh, thoughtful relationships to family life. But um, are men? I don't know. Not yeah. really. No. Um, yeah, and it's interesting that men's rights activists sort of rally around family court issues and... Um, and access to children and, and so on and so forth. Um, but it doesn't sort of, um, how that hasn't led to male birth control. I don't, uh, the birth control pill, I don't understand. Like yeah. there is enough uh, misogyny that you think they want control over that stuff. <laughs> I know that it's like the responsibility is considered to be the responsibility of, and the territory of, of you know, the, the problem, female though, body. Jessica, but, it's just like two women talking. I know. Cause we need, we need to have one of our, 
when the producer is steadily over ignoring the male us. Producer. Yeah. <laughs> he's, turning, he's turning his head away. He's turning his head away. But, you know, it would be really good to, like, get a, a, a male response to some of this. I mean, actually, I think that would be a good guess to have one day a man come on and talk about choice. Yeah. Um, and what how they feel about it. I mean, maybe part of it is control, right? Like, I think men feel like this absence of control around what women do with their bodies. This is part, this is what a lot of... Um, uh, rhetoric around pro-life people, you know, when men um, have this particular passion for that issue, it's around that um, in part psychologically. But I think, you know, liberal men also have that kind of interest in control, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, there's a lot of hostility, you know, when we would get, we would get angry letters sometimes from um, from men uh, whose uh, partners we had provided services to um, because he wasn't informed. He felt like he should have been informed and he wants to take it out on the clinic or whatever, probably on her too. Um, but yeah, it, the sense of like, how dare you um, make this decision without me or whatever. It's it's my my child too. And in a sense, like I can understand that if there is um, in an ideal world, yes, it's his responsibility too. It's his um, child too. But in the world that we live in, um, everything, the entire burden is, is on the woman. And so um, until men are less violent and nicer and so on and so forth, then, you know, screw you. You don't get to hear about it until if she's scared of you. Just so you know. why did you start working at the clinic? Can you tell me about that? Um, I started working at the clinic. I got a job at um, uh, the Planned Parenthood Education Center. So I was um, doing s- sort of um, sex ed curricula and answering questions over the phone um, and uh, doing the library and that sort of thing. And then um, my uh, I came in contact with this woman uh, who ran uh, TARAL, the Texas Abortion Rights Action League, um, and she was looking for volunteers uh, for uh, counselors. And so, um, yeah, I got uh, involved in it on that on that level, too. Um so, yeah, that's that's how. I think also this is one of the more poignant things that I'm remembering from my reporting and from these documentaries was, uh, you know, a lot of the doctors don't hear from their patients afterwards. It's mm-hmm. an, ex- again, because we've, we've wrapped this in stigma because there isn't that much aftercare because um, people, this is a state that someone would rather forget. Mm-hmm. It's not like getting well from a disease, right? It's like, um, and then you want to thank the doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's that's one of the things too. I think on the doctor side, there can sometimes be this kind of disconnect between what happens next with their the people that they perform abortions, you know, yeah. um, and then, uh, what happens in the people's lives later. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was sort of interesting. And I don't know if that was something you experienced. Like, did anyone ever send you, you know, thank you cards or was yeah. there? A, oh, yeah. okay. Um, okay. And I, you know, I don't know if anyone ever sent um, one to the doctor. I mean, when I, I was 20, you know, part of the reason that I became um, active uh, in this, uh, you know, part of it was my day job um, that I was lucky to get, but part of it was I had an abortion at 21. Um, and, so becoming a counselor, um, you know, I, I got thank you cards after that, but I don't know if, you know, my experience at 21 was, um, you know, I was in a room, um, I had some gas, um, and uh, so I was a little bit out of it. And then the doctor came in and, and there was no sort of direct contact at all. There was a nurse that was sort of um, holding my hand and talking to me and all this so forth. But the male doctor was... I don't remember him saying hello. I don't remember anything, but that was probably because I was having nitrous. Um, but it was a very disconnected 
emotionally experience. Um, but the nurse, I felt, you know. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that might be part of it. Um, but it felt very sort of, um, yeah, medicalized and weird. Um, and but some of these full service places that we reported on in like Indiana and Detroit and um, Buffalo, it was it was a different um, thing. There was because it was more relational because the same woman that might have had a birth there was having an abortion. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, or was getting diapers or whatever mm -hmm. for their. Um, and I think that um, I think that's more like healthier psychologically. Mm -hmm. um, but that's really interesting that you you did that. Um, were you the same kind of class position as the women you were helping? Uh, yeah. I mean, I was, you know, I was 21. I was, um, um, I came out of a lower middle class family, a uh, rural family. Um, so, yeah, and I was sort of, um, and, you know, counselor, but it, it was logistics. Um, a woman wanted an abortion, didn't know how to go about it. So I helped her figure out financial information. I helped her find clinics right. and that sort of stuff. But, of course, you know, there was usually a much larger conversation than just, you know, um, uh, what's the address or the phone number or whatever and how do I make an appointment? Um, so it was always, um, yeah, very emotional. But I, you know, I I got a thank you letter one time from the mother of a uh, 12-year-old that I'd helped uh, get an abortion because she had been raped. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, that was... <clears throat> yeah, that was a very sort of. Um, I still have that. I still have that card. So, oh, wow. yeah. So there has been. You know, I remember when uh, the first women's march happened. There was a contingent of uh, so-called pro-life feminists uh, who were angry that they weren't included in the march. But it seems like now there is this kind of um, uh, fight on that side of the pro-life movement to start co-opting the word feminist and be the um, the real true supporters of women. Um, has that, have you sort of run into this? Yeah. So one of the clinics I reported on, there was this um, very kind of Tammy Faye Baker looking woman um, who was really incredibly nice, um, who would be in waiting in the front for when the cars were driving into the, the clinic with her pro-life message and her giant glittering Bible. And she kept calling herself a Jesus feminist. And I, I reported on that and I found that there was, there's even a book on Jesus feminism. That's the phrase they've been using. And um, it was interesting. I mean, it's not entirely, um, you know, some of the people who are practicing Jesus feminism are, it's not always about, you know, pro-life. It has other elements as well. But um, she was like, I'm a strong woman. I, you know, I, I, she was trying to create as much in I guess in some of the art, language I'm arguing for she was doing the, the opposite side of that kind of language where she was trying to uh, appropriate uh, or bring together her very very extreme pro-life views and you know the women's movement Forever Dog This has been a Forever Dog production executive produced by Dog. Brett Boehm Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.